Laura Bellin. There are a lot of people who want to talk to you today. I'm one of them, but it's good to see so many friendly faces on the call. Greetings, everyone. Well, I assume most of you know who Laura Bellin is, or you wouldn't be joining this call. But there will be people who uh, listen to the podcast who might not know who Laura Bellin is. I'm biased, but I have found her to be one of the uh, most prolific and insightful analysts of Iowa politics that I've ever seen. And there are a lot of good ones. So it's uh, not a takeaway from anybody else, but I've had an opportunity to get to know Laura offline and uh, she is who she is. She's very <laughs> smart. So Laura, tell me, tell me, let's just start right away with your takeaway from the last election vis-a-vis -vis Iowa. What, what, what were the takeaways for you? Well, this is great because I don't often get a chance to report some good news coming out of Iowa, but the, the state held school board and local elections, city elections last week. And just for context, some of you may remember that for many years, Iowans used to elect school boards in September, and then the local elections would be in November. The Republicans combined those in 2019. And the idea was so that the teachers union would have less influence over the school board races. The idea was that you'd have higher turnout for these combined city and school elections. And at least so the Republicans thought that that would mean fewer candidates supported by the teachers union were elected. And that is the opposite of what happened. I think that uh, looking across the state, of course, you can't generalize about every single school district. There are more than 300. But looking at the larger, let's say the largest 15 to 20 school districts, a very, very clear trend emerged which was that the conservative candidates flopped. Very few conservatives were elected to the school boards. And for the most part, candidates who were backed by local Democrats, progressives, the Iowa State Education Association in many cases, those candidates were successful. These are nonpartisan elections for school and city, but we've seen a growing trend here, and I think in other states as well, that there's more of a partisan tinge to these races than there ever used to be. And so in a lot of communities, you had, let's say, if there were three seats up for election, there were six candidates, a progressive slate and a conservative slate. Or if in my case, in the West Des Moines School District, there were four seats, there were eight candidates on the ballot, very clearly four backed by conservatives, four uh, backed by progressives or area Democrats. And in any case, the, in most of these school board races, there was a clean sweep for the progressive slate. That is very different from what happened in 2021. You had a real mixed bag. Some districts like West Des Moines and Waukee, the progressive candidates were elected, but in other districts like Johnston and Ankeny, the conservatives ran the table two years ago. And that was not the case this time. Oh, and then I wanted to mention Pella. Yeah, <laughs> we oh, love Pella. I have to tell you, I did not even, I used to have a friend in Pella, so I visited there regularly for years. I did not even allow myself to dare to hope that the referendum on the Pella Library could be defeated. But in fact, that no side was victorious. It was a close race, but not recount close. It was about a 51%, 49% result for keeping the Pella Library Board independent, not allowing the city council to overrule the library board. And that was something that the whole ballot initiative was 
it instigated by book banners who were very upset that the library board hadn't removed the book Gender Queer from the adult section of the library. So in any case, that was a huge win, especially in a community like Pella. And I think that along with the school board results in many districts showed that the majority of Iowans are not in favor of banning books. Well, there is some good news. All right, let's open it up to questions. I bet you there's some folks on this call that have a comment. Now, Laura, as you well know, because you're a regular participant in these calls, we have participants from all over the state. So it'll be interesting to hear if anybody has a observation from, from their hometown. I don't know, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but did you read Cheryl Tevis's column about the Boone mayor? Yes, yes. Was, wasn't that a nice surprise? It was a nice surprise. I I guess my understanding is that there were two conservative candidates who split the vote. So I think that he won, Elijah won a three-way race. So that certainly must have helped as opposed to running one-on-one -on -one against a conservative candidate. But again, we're seeing more partisan tinges to local elections than we ever used to see in the past. I've, and I've heard that from many people who have served on city councils or school boards. All right, let's, uh, who's who's going to ask the first question? Chuck, I'll call on you because you always have a good question and you can set the table. Thank you. You are on mute. Just a heads up to everybody, I to avoid barking dogs and all the other things that happen on a typical Zoom call. Everybody's muted, so you'll need to unmute when you, when you are ready to speak. So Chuck, you ready? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, good to see everybody. And Laura, thanks for jumping on today. It's always great to hear your analysis of, of political events. Uh, let's go to the Des Moines mayor's race. Oh, yeah. Uh, you did some some outstanding reporting in a quick order on the maybe the Friday or the Saturday preceding that election. Um, what did you think of that? Uh, and what did you what did you think of the outcome of the race? How? You know, the, uh, uh, Josh Mandelbaum took a strong stand earlier for reproductive freedom and the statement he'd made at the council meeting that tried to, that he tried to make policy. And I don't think that was passed by the council, but at any rate, he took a strong stand in his campaign for reproductive freedom and taking a stand that way. Um, then in the, you know, uh, I heard Doug Gross last week at an Ollie class at Drake. I asked him about this, actually, in a question. He was presenting on politics and the election outcome and all that with Tom Henderson, his uh, a Democratic friend of his, who they've done these classes before. But I asked uh, them if if they thought that that stand cost Josh Mandelbaum the election. And then I got specific with gross and i asked him what were you thinking of putting out those you know the forming that organization and putting out those kind of smearing um uh, flyers in the waning days of the campaign and the first thing they said was <clears throat> they uh, gross said that uh they perceived josh as winning uh they thought josh was winning and it actually that stand was probably uh helping him be in the lead in the campaign and and doug gross said that's why he and his allies uh took a stand to try to undermine josh in the waning days of the campaign on other local issues they did they, they did he have polling data to suggest that josh was winning or was that just his impression 
I, I, he did not mention polling data, but I think that was his impression. And I think Tom Henderson indicated the same thing, that they both thought Josh Mandelbaum was leading that campaign. And uh, and so Henderson was surprised that Josh lost. Uh, Gross did his best to undermine that in the, in the waning days. So what did you think of that? Okay, so first of all, just for the people who weren't following the mayor's race closely, there, here's the situation. It's an open... It's an open race because longtime mayor Frank County retired or decided not to seek reelection. So there were four candidates on the ballot, but two were clearly the leading candidates. They were both city council members, Connie Bozen and Josh Mandelbaum. And then there was Denver Foote was a candidate running on a very progressive platform, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, I mean, a, a Black Lives Matter reform, the police, uh, uh, very progressive. So if anything, I would say Denver's vote probably took more from potential voters for Josh than for Connie Bozen. And then there was a fourth candidate who was kind of a wild card and not really running much of a real campaign that I could tell. So it, the result was that Connie Bozen ended up winning narrowly. It was about a two percentage point margin. She won by about 700 votes. She had about 48% of the vote, I think. And it because Des Moines used to have a runoff election in this situation, but they no longer, they did away with runoffs a couple of election cycles ago. So she is the winner, even though she did not get 50% of the vote. So the reproductive rights thing, I mean, and, and I'm just going to preface this by saying that I, I like, I've known Josh for a long time through the environmental community. I, I was supporting Josh, but I don't dislike Connie. I like Connie. So this isn't, you know, specific. It's not that I have some axe to grind against her, but I felt that her campaign all along was kind of trying to do a tricky thing where they were saying we're running a positive campaign. And yet then they were slamming Josh for supposedly running a negative campaign. I mean, I got multiple press releases from her staff bashing Josh, never got a press release from his campaign bashing her. But what it boiled down to was after the Dobbs decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade, Josh worked with Planned Parenthood advocates of Iowa, among other people, to try to draft a resolution that was a statement of city policy, including things like if city, if city employees need to exercise their rights in a way that's not allowed in Iowa, that the city will reimburse their travel expenses. It also, there was some language in there about law enforcement not pursuing criminal investigations related to whether somebody had an abortion and so on. And he tried to put this before the council and uh, Joe Gatto, fellow council member, offered like a motion to table or to, to not consider that. And Connie Bozen seconded the motion not to consider that. They said this was outside the purview of what the city council should do. So he he lost that effort to have the city council formally vote on this. I mean, technically, it was a vote to table his motion that passed by five votes to two. So his campaign was emphasizing in their direct mail and also in the TV ad that he ran that he was, I mean, he had a specific proposal to try to support reproductive rights, that he's the only candidate for running for mayor who supported that proposal, which I think is factual. I mean, you can disagree about whether that was a good idea. Maybe it's maybe the city council couldn't. I mean, when I talked to Connie supporters about this and they would say things like, well, they couldn't they can't offer a benefit without renegotiating the contract or like this wouldn't really be practical and the legislature, this, okay, those are, those are differences of opinion about whether you think this resolution is a good idea. But to me, it's factual to say that he had a proposal 
And this was something that she didn't support. So in any case, I mean, like, like she went guns blazing on how this was a false attack and a negative attack and a smear because she's pro-choice. Nobody said she's not pro-choice, dominantly. I mean, she is pro-choice. But so the mailing that Chuck referred to is something completely different. So Doug Gross, who's a big donor to Connie Bozen's campaign, he donated $5,000 directly. He also hosted a co-hosted a fundraiser for her over the summer. He organized this group. They registered with the Iowa Secretary of State's office in late October. They did not register with the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, which is the regulator of campaigns. And they, as far as I can tell, the sole, the totality of the activity of this group, Citizens for Des Moines, was to produce and mail two mailings attacking Josh, not on the reproductive rights issue, uh, really false attacks about his, his environmental work and claiming that he would try to ban gas stoves and raise your utility bills and so on. So in any case, it was, it was not, the spending was not disclosed by this group because they, they used a trick that you've probably seen in an ad where it's like, it's obviously a campaign ad, but then at the end, instead of saying don't vote for so-and-so, they say like, call so-and-so and tell him this or call Congress and tell them that. So these mailings said, call Josh Mandelbaum and tell him keep special interests out of city government. Well, it was obviously the only purpose of these mailings, which reach people's mailboxes less than a week before the election were to discourage people from voting for Josh. But because they didn't say don't vote for Josh Mandelbaum or vote, oppose Josh Mandelbaum for mayor, that kind of thing, they weren't subject to the campaign finance disclosure. So they, they used a loophole. So the, the fundraising wasn't disclosed. The spending wasn't disclosed. Of course, Doug Gross, and not surprisingly, didn't answer any of my questions about it. The the claims made in the mailing were just not accurate. And in any case, I mean, could that have had an influence? It definitely. I don't know how large the universe was for that mailing. I know I heard from it immediately on the Thursday before the election. I heard from it from multiple people about it. And he lost by 700 votes. So, you know, when it's close like that, lots of things could make a difference in the election. And I think it's very unfortunate. And I think we're going to probably see more dark money spending in future local elections because they're able to get away with it. And we just don't know. Like I said, we don't know who funded it. We know we know Doug Gross was the president of this organization that registered with the Secretary of State's office. But really, I think mailings that the whole purpose of campaign finance disclosure law is that people should be able to find out who paid for this communication. And whatever, you know, I know that there are people supporting Connie who didn't like Josh's ads, but they were out there. His name was attached. Anybody could go look at his campaign disclosure and you could see who donated, where the money came from to pay for those ads. And we really have no idea. Was it people like Doug Gross, individuals who supported Connie Bozen? Was it Mid-American or some other corporations who don't like Josh's work for it, for the environmental organization he's on a staff attorney for, you know, we have no way of knowing, right? But that, so I think that's very corrosive to our local politics. And it's not that I think Connie Bozen will be a bad mayor, but I think the result was unfortunate. And so I expect in future election cycles, when we have a tough race like that, we're going to see more of these groups pop up that don't disclose their spending. Okay, we've got hands raised. Ralph, you are up first, then Chuck, then Bryce. Well, thank you. And I agree 100%. And I was a donor to Josh's campaign. I would like to hear your opinion or the opinion of others as to the response of Connie. Because I was really disappointed. She could have said, 
I did not approve this. She could have said, I disagree with it. She just, my, the, the minimum comment was, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I'm going to actually, now I'm going to go and read her statement just so that I don't. Um, okay. Okay. Because she, her campaign, she posted something on Facebook that I also felt was inadequate to address the situation. But I sent her campaign a bunch of questions. Is she going to call on Doug Gross and others associated with these group to disclose their spending? Is she going to disavow this since this obviously right. is not is making claims that aren't true? So this is what she posted on Facebook. I'm proud that we've run a positive campaign focused on my vision for a stronger Des Moines, even with unprecedented spending to mislead voters about where I stand. I haven't and will not run negative ads or attack my opponents in this race. And I don't condone any groups or individuals who resort to this. Voters deserve better, and I'm proud of the positive campaign we've run. I mean, I will just say that I dispute that she hasn't attacked her opponents because they sent out multiple press releases, and she had numerous social media posts attacking Josh for supposedly uh, misleading voters about her stance or, or his false ad, which I don't think was false. But in any case, so I mean, I, I guess I just reject the premise that she ran a positive campaign, but also... I mean, to say I don't condone any groups or individuals who resort to this falls short of saying, uh, you know, this is disappointing. And I call on my supporters who are involved in this organization to disclose their fundraising or their spending. And also, uh, this is regrettable because it's not true that Josh, you know, just wants to increase your utility bill or whatever. So she she didn't say any of those things. So I right. did find it disappointing. Yeah. And no, one other, con just one final comment or question is she could have said, that we should change the law because I don't find this behavior uh, uh, supporting and we should change the campaign finance ethics law to have disclosure, to require people who donate above a certain level to declare whether they're public lo lobbyists, which is public information anyhow. But she could have taken that extra step to really disassociate herself. And then finally, don't you think she could have just called Doug and said, say, stop it? <laughs> Well, by that time, I mean, the mailings arrived on Thursday and Friday. So even if she had called them to say, stop it, I mean, now the, the mailings were in the mail, right? So that is, I don't know about that. And changing the law, I think would be very difficult because like I said, they avoided the, the Iowa law requires disclosure for express advocacy, encouraging people to vote for or against a candidate or for or against a ballot initiative. And I, in seeking comment from the head of the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, he said what I knew he was going to say, which is that this falls short of express advocacy. So really, it would be difficult to change the law to encompass a mailing like this that doesn't, I mean, it's obvious to everyone, right? It's obvious that the only purpose of the mailing is to discourage the recipient from voting for Josh Mandelbaum, but to try to structure, to, to rewrite the law so that you define express advocacy to include things like this would be very difficult, I think, and would probably raise free speech concerns, political speech concerns. I mean, people do have the right to make false political speech, but the campaign finance law is supposed to exist so that at least we know who's lying to us about the candidates. And in this case, we don't know. Other than knowing that Doug Gross was the president of the group, we really don't know who else was involved in putting together these mailings and paying to send them to Des Moines voters. Do we have any idea who was running the campaigns professionally? 
what do you mean? The, of the, the, the I don't know who like printed the mail. I'm not sure what, what vendor they used. I mean, that's the whole, that's another thing, right? That's because there was no disclosure filed. Like there's, there should have been in theory, there should have been an independent expenditure report that would at least reveal how much they spent and who the vendor was, but no, I don't have any information on that. Okay. Bryce, I mean, you we do question? for the campaigns. Oh. For the for the Mandelbaum and Bozen campaigns, they filed all of the disclosures that are required by law. Okay, Chuck, did you have a follow up before I go to Bryce? Oh, it was inter- one quick one, and it was interesting to me. And this will rile up our host Julie Gamick, I'm sure, because I thought I, I'm I'm anti-abortion. Okay, so that Josh's statement that he was running a uh, campaign on reproductive freedom was. You know, I respect his right to do that, of course. And but I think I thought it was a real close call, if not a foolish decision to make that part of his campaign. Regardless, I like the guy. Yeah. I thought he missed the big issue. I thought the big issue that he should have pressed was he's 44 years old and Connie Bozen 73. She's too damn old. Let's move on. <laughs> now, Gamick's turning around today and saying Joe Biden can't withdraw. He's got to stay in there at 85 years old or whatever he is. And uh, but everybody is I mean, people will get out there and we will slug it out on the abortion issue and other complicated issues that we all know divide us. But, oh, my God, we can't talk about age. Are you kidding me? What's the deal with this? Well, I don't know. I can't speak for whether, you know, whether Josh considered running on that argument or not. I mean, I'm sure he had his reasons for choosing. I mean, the irony is that on the city council, Josh and Connie are fairly closely aligned. I think there was a, it was maybe the Des Moines editorial board when they were asked, who do you most closely align with on the city council? And they both said each other. So there weren't a lot of differences on the issues. And I think that we've seen in in elections around the country, that reproductive rights are very salient. So, I mean, I can just surmise that that's probably why that is something that motivates a lot of voters. The, the majority of voters in an election like this are going to be Democrats or Democratic line. So I don't know whether he considered running on age. I mean, yeah, I mean, Connie Bozen is, I don't think that she's too old to be mayor. She's clearly not going to be there for 20 years like Frank County was, though. Chuck, I love you dearly. So, so respect your opinion on abortion. And I, by God, Chuck, don't get one. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Hey, Bryce, you're up next. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to widen the lens uh, a little bit uh, back to local elections in general and the school board elections in particular. Uh, For those of us to the left of center of the political spectrum, uh, our comfort in what happened in those local elections, I'm afraid, will be uh, temporary, uh, likely to be temporary. First of all, I think we have to understand that most of those school board issues are nationalized issues. Just like our politics in general in this state, we have a national governor, for example. And most of the issues that were involved in those school board races uh, are nationally, um, the awareness of them is national and the financing of them is. But for the preoccupation on the right of center, with regard to the presidential uh, competition going on in Iowa, you would have seen a different focus and a more concerted focus on those local uh, school board elections with regard to those issues. So I think uh, we have to realize that a combination of, of national issues, which will be financed the next time around, 
the next uh, several elections certainly uh, are going to be uh, influenced by outside dark money. It will return to Iowa and they will focus on local issues. I recall, and perhaps Laura and several others of you will recall, that uh, Coralville had a very large bond issue uh, back uh, some years, four, five, six years ago. Our firm lobbied on behalf of Coralville, a matter of full disclosure here. But uh, uh, Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers actually got into that local election big time, oh, yeah. uh, basically on the basis of it was going to, um, uh, they didn't like the indebtedness, they didn't like, uh, uh, Coralville had a fairly high level of indebtedness as a city anyway, but they got involved in that. And that was not accidental, that's intentional. And uh, so we're going to see in school board elections uh, uh, two, uh, you know, two years from now, and four years from now are going to look different. So, uh, well, I guess somebody, I, Johnny, I, I, I would have you comment on that. I challenge that. I saw, yes, in the register, that was the Republican line, right? Well, our people didn't turn out as much because they were just focused on the on the presidential race. I don't agree. I'm working on something, and I'm just I'm not going to publish it until after the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board is going to have a meeting this Thursday and the, their director is going to report on the, the trends that they observed. First of all, a lot of money was spent. These school board racers are much more expensive than they ever used to be. Yes. And there was outside money. And I mean, the family leader, which is Bob Vanderplatz's organization, they endorsed a slate of four candidates in Johnston. For the first time, they got involved in a school board race. Moms for Liberty had endorsed candidates around the state and they were spending money on behalf of those candidates. And those candidates candidates, almost all of them lost. So I don't think that it's really accurate. I mean, I think this is their face-saving thing, right? That, well, everyone's focused on the caucuses now. And if you look at the Pella, yesterday I talked to some of the people involved in the no campaign in Pella, and they were saying the turnout was quite high. I mean, it was higher than usual city election turnout in Pella. And there was money spent both sides. They had direct mail. They had people out canvassing. So, I mean, it wasn't like people weren't aware of the election. And this was in a very conservative town and they voted not to let the city overrule the library board. So, I mean, I don't think that these school board races turned out the way they did because that on the conservative side, people just weren't paying attention. I do think that there's going to be more money spent on them in other in the next few cycles. And it's something we're going to have to keep our eye on. But I feel like this trend of progressive slates and conservative slates running for school boards and these races being more expensive than they used to be, I think that that is here to stay. And I'm not at all surprised. Americans for Prosperity, they've gotten involved in a number of local elections and they've spent a lot of money. I mean, they, they spend more money on the state legislative races, but they definitely have gotten involved in local elections like that. Yeah, and it's but I I just think it's a matter of proportion. I think they will outspend the next time around. I that's just my view. I think well, well we'll see. I mean, I guess I don't know. There there was I mean these candidates in Johnston, a couple of them had Moms for Liberty, and all four of them had the family leaders spending money, and they lost, and it really wasn't close. Like they lost by a lot, <laughs> and that was after two years ago the conservatives had done very well in Johnston. I mean, one explanation, this was somebody commenting on results in another state, but I think it it possibly applies to the Iowa school board races as well. But the conservatives in 2021, they were capitalizing on a lot of parents being unhappy with school closures related to COVID. 
And so they had quite a bit of success in school board races, not all of the districts, but in a lot of districts. And so then they interpreted that as a mandate for their entire agenda, including their book banning and anti-LGBTQ and everything else that they're trying to do in schools. And in fact, most people don't support their the the rest of their agenda, uh, even if they were even if many people were sympathetic to their ideas that schools should have reopened for in-person instruction sooner than they did. Okay. All right, thanks, Bryce. Tim, yeah. Tim Wagner, you have your hand up. Um, really, uh, really think about Laura's here. It's just an observation that I noticed, I'm sure, as well. You know, I've been following Ashley Hitson's um, <clears throat> stream of consciousness on social media for, for months and months and months. And there's probably nobody out there in terms of uh, uh, any of Iowa's uh, congressional um, uh, group that uh, posts more culture war stuff on social media than Ashley Hitson has done. And of course, it was widely reported that she was very much in supportive. Uh, financially as well to a couple of the can Moms for Liberty candidates in the Lindmar School right. Board election. And of course, those those lost. I just think it's it's quite remarkable since that election a week ago that all of Ashley Henson's posts on social media have been pretty much nonpartisan. There hasn't been any of the culture war nonsense, whether it's, you know, Moms for Liberty or book bans or abortion or immigration or nothing like that. And so I guess I'm just throwing it out there. Do you think that there was a lesson learned by some of those? Or are they just going to double down and come back even harder when they get the chance to do so? Ashley Henson is very cynical as a politician. I've been following her since she was first in the Iowa House. She, I'm sure she'll come back on that stuff. By the way, I, I greatly enjoyed emailing her staff on Wednesday to ask how, does she have any comment on the outcome of the elections in Linmar since she has been very publicly bashing Linmar and her own kids attend Linmar schools and you know doesn't how do, why does she think that the voters rejected the conservative candidates in Linmar and is she going to consider moving her children to another school or is she going to accept the direction of the school board that the voters in Linmar chose and of course I did not hear back from her staff but I mean it's look the culture war, I think they'll never stop going back to the culture war well, but maybe temporarily, yes, did she? I certainly haven't seen any acknowledgement from her that the that the races went poorly. I didn't see any acknowledgement. I did also ask the governor's spokesperson for comment on it since the governor was very much in support of this whole agenda for schools, this conservative agenda that seems to have been rejected. Didn't hear anything about that last week. Uh, didn't hear really any comment on how those elections went. So I, I think that Ashley Henson is gonna be coming back, but maybe not specifically bashing Linmar as much as she used to. You know, I never understood why Linmar bore the brunt of so many conservative attacks because their policy, their their previous policy that was supportive of transgender or non-binary students was similar. I mean, 20 other school districts probably had the same policy. So it wasn't something that was unique to Linmar. It wasn't like they were, this was just, it was normal because they were complying with federal and state civil rights law in being supportive of students who are transgender. So I thought that was 
very strange always that Linmar was the focus of so much attention. And I was very heartened to see it was pretty late before I got the results. I mean, the results from the suburbs of Des Moines came in earlier and I was starting to work on my post, but I didn't really want to make a clear statement about a direction for the whole state until I saw the results for Linmar. And then I saw, and again, it, it really wasn't that close, honestly, that the conservative candidates there lost. Could it be that the Cedar Rapids Gazette is their um, media market, and so the Gazette was giving it quite a bit of attention? No, I mean, the governor herself and Ashley Hinson herself, they really, and Mike Pence, I mean, there was just a lot of conservative focus on Linmar, the, a conservative blog, the Iowa Standard, uh, published a bunch of stuff negative about their policy. I mean, I never really understood, like I said, it, it wasn't a unique policy, but it, it became a talking point that was repeated frequently. You know, the governor went up and did an event there and in Linmar, a, a meeting with parents that wasn't publicly announced ahead of time. The school board members who were supportive of the district were not invited to participate. Only the conservative on the board was invited. So, I mean, Ashley Hinson and Kim Reynolds really tried to make Linmar the poster child for school districts that have gone way too far on this woke everything. And the voters just didn't support that. They didn't agree with them on that. Now you could argue, and I think that's partly some of the Republican comments in the Des Moines Register. They were saying, well, the legislature passed these laws and they took care of the problem. And so the conservatives didn't think that they needed to come out and vote for the school boards because it's already been taken care of. I mean, I don't know, it's very difficult the turnout numbers when they are released after the election is certified are going to be by county. So it's going to be pretty difficult to break down by school district how many Republicans or Democrats turned out. But I don't think this was a low turnout school election at all. Okay, who else has a question? I've got some comments in the um, chat I'd like to have on uh, uh, discuss. Mary McCarthy, I see that you actually took the leap and signed up to work last week's election. Would you be so kind as to share your experience with the group and maybe ask Laura a question? Well, hello. <clears throat> yes, um, it was a really, really good experience. It was a long day. Uh, I had some trepidation because if you screw up, you can go to jail. And uh, I didn't wanna go to jail, but I found the training very good, very thorough. I, I had a dorm, that was my site. And oh, wow. it was it was so great to see young voters, um, a lot of change of registration, new registration, but it really was a very, very positive experience for me. So um, I think it's, we, we really need people who are gonna be conscientious. The 2024 um, election may, there'll be a lot of poll watchers, there'll be a lot of whatever. Most of the people were extremely pleasant and happy to vote. So I, I was very affirming to me. Mary, oh, where were you located? Doing that. That's important. Poll workers. Uh, are Peterson, Hall, Peterson Hall dorm at the University of Iowa campus. It's a fabulous building. Um, and um, we didn't have a huge turnout, but it was okay because uh, I was a newbie, but I did work with a, a very, very um, interesting, my boss is probably 25 and uh, she's from Illinois and her, she's been working elections since she was a kid and her first helping for an election was in a laundromat in, in Chicago proper. So she was a great boss. 
So obviously we can't extrapolate uh, an entire movement based on one precinct and in Johnson County, no less. But did, did you have any takeaways about youth voting? I think they were enthusiastic. Uh, some, um, well, <laughs> some of them weren't quite awake, but I mean, it was just a really neat experience. I live in a town with a lot of great energy. So I'm used to that, that college student <laughs> look and life and the way they are, but um, I like it and it's very energizing. So right, I would say, I would say, please uh, go and try to take the training and find out what you need to do in your county. Great suggestion. Any question or comment for Laura? Mary? No. Thank okay. you, Laura. All right. Laura Angler, you have your hand raised. You are muted. You're going to need to unmute. Sorry about that. Okay. There we go. This. So uh, just looking at the participants, I know that, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a time when school board elections were not held on election day. If we and I understand the re, the rationale for doing that now, cost relation, da 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 da. But I can't help but wonder if that might keep some politics out of it. Returning to that, any thoughts, anybody? Or correct me oh, if I'm mean, wrong. You mean returning to the September elections for the school right, board? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, or I don't. Even make I mean, I I think the legislature would not change the law back on it, but it's possible. I mean, I will say that I, I remember knocking doors for a school board candidate one yeah. year, and the election day was the day after Labor Day, and I thought this is so stupid. Why are we having? I mean, you're trying to get out the vote on Labor Day weekend, so I don't know. I'm I'm not necessarily against combining the school and local elections, but I it could be that that contributes to the partisanship in the, but I think that that's just the trend. These races are getting nationalized and I've, we've heard it from candidates for city and county offices that, you know, you're running for some county board and people are asking you, why do you want to defund the police or something? You know, was something they heard on talk radio that's not really, you know, that they never said that they don't stand for that's, or that's not relevant. They're asking about the Southern border for they're asking candidates for the city council about the southern border. So, you know, I mean, I think that the nationalization of these races is just something that may be just part of the age we're living in. Okay. Anybody else have a question right now? Please uh, raise your hand or, okay, Lowell Norland. I love it when former and current legislators are on the call. Laurel, Lowell, do you have a question or a comment for Laura Bellin? I have a concern I'd like to have uh, Laura speak to. I I'm I worry that Democrats are going to overdo the abortion issue and and make it a one issue campaign and get beat. I I think there's a place for abortion and 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 what I see in in Ohio now we 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 passed the abortion bill the the constitutional amendment but it has to do with 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 a young ten and and twelve year old girl. That's where the people want abortions available, and I don't think that they're 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 crazy about all abortions, but they are simply going to go with that one to to, to save the ten and ten and twelve year old girl, 
I'd like to have Laura talk about that. If we, it, I don't want Democrats to overdo the thing. Well, okay. I mean, I guess I, I think what we've seen the clear trend in elections since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade is that abortion went from for decades being an issue that was a net positive for Republican candidates has become an issue that's a net positive for Democratic candidates. I wouldn't encourage Democrats to only run on that issue. And I don't think they are only running on that issue. But for instance, the Iowa House Democrats in the fall 2022 elections, they introduced a platform. It was like a four plank platform that was measures to support working families, uh, something related to funding, proper funding for public schools, uh, re a reproductive rights agenda that would have included a constitutional amendment similar to what has passed in Michigan and Ohio and legalizing marijuana. So it was one part of a four-part platform. And I think that that seems to me, I mean, I would certainly not encourage Democratic candidates to downplay abortion. And, and you may be right that there may be a lot of people who are mostly comfortable with, I mean, that you if you were following the Kentucky race for governor, he had a very hard hitting TV ad that was narrated by a woman who said, I was raped by my stepfather when I was 12 years old. And, you know, you, the, Daniel Cameron, the Republican nominee, supports this abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest. And, you know, that's unthinkable and unconscionable. And so Kentucky, a state that is much more conservative than Iowa, if you just look at the voting patterns, I mean, they voted down, um, they voted against an anti-choice amendment, and then they just reelected a governor, a Democratic governor who did run. That wasn't the only issue he ran on, but he certainly ran very strongly on the abortion issue and opposing the abortion ban that's in effect in Kentucky. So like, I guess I'm not, I, I don't think that that's the real risk. I mean, I think Democrats could definitely still lose a lot of elections, but I don't think that they would be losing because they talk too much about abortion. Now, I will say in a state like Ohio or Kentucky that you see when people have a chance to vote up or down just on abortion, there are a number of people, and it was true in Kansas as well, there are a number of people who lean toward Republican candidates generally, but when they have a chance to vote just on the abortion issue, they will vote for the pro-choice position. And so that's not to say that Ohio is going to turn around and elect a bunch of pro-choice Democrats to office, because that double-digit win that they just had on their constitutional amendment, there must have been quite a few Republicans who voted for that amendment for it to pass by that margin. My, my county here is is very Republican, and they even voted for the for the constitutional amendment. Yeah, that was in Kansas as well. My my point is that that the the the, the really hard hitting ad that they had in Ohio was for, was the dad and his twelve year old daughter. Oh yes, and I think that that really works. But but I I, I think we ought to stick with that kind of a of a of a of a, of a abortion issue. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just, I mean, just in all clarity, like I am a third generation supporter of Planned Parenthood in Iowa, and I do support and not only for 12 year olds who are raped. I mean, I support human beings having autonomy and being able to decide whether to continue a pregnancy. I understand that people have very deeply held views on the issue, but that that's where I stand. So I am not, you know, I, I wouldn't want to only say that I support, you know, 12 year olds who are raped having a choice, but it's true that those are the ads that are most effective with the widest number of voters. But that's, I mean, the issue one that just passed in Ohio, it is much stronger protection for reproductive rights than that. I mean, basically it returns to a row type 
regime. I mean, it, it is legal up until the point of viability. Okay, Carl Schilling, you have a question. Would you unmute? There you go. Nice to see you. Uh -huh. Just a little bit of a change of subject. I saw a national poll that said that the public nationally at 71% now favor unions. Uh, do you see any change in Iowa in its support of unions? I have not seen any polling on that. I have seen generally that support for labor unions is at like a high, I mean, a, a very high level compared to where it's been for the last 50 years. I will say that in talking to people who are either Democrats or people who are around the labor movement, I mean, one of the issues that we have in Iowa is not only that the unionized workforce has declined, but a lot of labor union members vote for Republicans. I mean, Donald Trump kind of exemplified that, but it's not only Trump they're voting for, that they're voting for a lot of Republicans down ballot as well. So I'm not sure how Iowans feel about labor unions, but I do think that like we shouldn't assume that everyone who says they support labor unions also supports Democratic candidates because we're seeing that's less the case than it used to. And that's why a place like Ottumwa or Fort Dodge and Newton and Keokuk are now electing Republicans to the legislature. That's one reason, one among many. Let's do talk about the legislature and some of the races that surprised you. And I think I think uh, Burlington was another area uh, where a longtime incumbent Democrat lost a seat. What do you what do you predict or what are you seeing in terms of the future cycle? Well, the legislative races are really alarming for me. And I've always, I've followed the legislative races closely since I think, you know, the 2008 or 2010 cycle here. And Iowa, because we don't have gerrymandering, we have a high number of competitive state house and Senate races. And it's one of the reasons it's exciting to cover politics here. But <laughs> we have fewer and fewer competitive races. And the, the key issue for Democrats now is these, I call them mid-sized cities. Some people call them micropolitan areas. These are communities with a city between 10,000 and 40,000 in population. Many of these communities used to be just bedrock Democrat supporting areas, and now they are electing Republicans to the legislature, and in many cases, not even close. And what we see happening again and again, the Burlington was an exception because Dennis Cahoon actually lost that race. He was the longest serving Democrat in the legislature, and he lost his last reelection bid. But what we see more often is a long serving Democrat retires, and then immediately the Republican wins the open seat race. And then like the next cycle and after, it's not even on the map in terms of a competitive district. So we saw that in Fort Dodge. We saw it in Newton. Clinton is the latest one. And that is a real concern. I mean, Democrats were, as recently as 2020, it looked like plausible that Democrats could regain the majority in the Iowa House. And they're really, really far down now. I mean, it's a 64-36 House and it's a 34-16 Senate. And that's not necessarily the bottom. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm not I'm not predicting that this will happen, but it's very possible that the Republicans could continue to have net gains in the House and Senate in 2024. And I mean, that it, historically, the Democrats are at a pretty low point right now. Like, unless you go back to the time when the Senate was so malapportioned, but, but given like the modern apportionment where the districts have roughly equal in size population, the Democrats are about at the lowest point 
they've ever been in the Iowa Senate, which is pretty scary. And the only way back is to start doing better in some of these communities, these mid-sized cities. So everything like Ottumwa, Muscatine, Boone, Marshalltown, I mean, Fort Dodge, like I said, Keokuk and Burlington is a big one. There's going to be an Iowa Senate seat on the ballot next year that is covering the Burlington area and Lee County, which includes Keokuk. And that is going to be really important. And Fort Madison also. Is it? A, I'm going to go to Bryce and then Nancy Bobo again. Um, and also uh, the the presidential election on the GOP side. But is it an oversimplification to say the Democratic Party made a huge mistake not doing door knocking during COVID and that this is the result? No, the trend was starting well before COVID. Although you, you can say that they, I would say, so the Democrats had a net loss of six Iowa House seats in 2020. And I would say at most three of them, you could attribute to not door knocking during COVID. But the other three were honestly not even that close. And this started in 2014, 2016, 2018. Democrats have steadily been losing Iowa legislative seats in these areas that elected Democrats for many years. I mean, I think I don't think Newton probably elected a Republican to the legislature since like before I was born until 2018. And now it's not even, I mean, 2018 is when they won the Senate seat. Then they won the House seat after the Democrat stepped down and there was a special election. And now it's like not even considered a competitive district. So it, it's way beyond, and they were door knocking in 2022. So, I mean, I feel like that is, there were a couple of seats that that maybe cost them, but a lot of the races that they've been losing are not even that close. And that is something that's very alarming some of the incumbents, long-serving Iowa Senate incumbents in Northeast or Southeast Iowa who lost their re-election bids and they were rooted in the community. This is why I like the one, I'm repeating myself probably for some of you here, but like the one thing that I can't stand is when people say, Iowa Democrats are losing because they stopped talking to voters. Just not true. I mean, these legislators, they were at every pancake breakfast and spaghetti supper and many of them were knocking on thousands of doors a year. And so that's not why they, and they were rooted in the community. That's not why they lost. A lot of things are going on politically and it's not only affecting Iowa, it's affecting cities like, you know, Ottumwa, Marshalltown, whatever. It's Mason City. It's affecting communities like that nationally. And Iowa happens to have a lot of towns that size. So it's been very unfortunate, but I don't know. I I, I think like going, if, if we could redo it, probably a lot of those candidates would have knocked doors in 2020, but I don't think that would have changed the outcome of most okay. of the races. All right, good. So Bryce, Nancy, and then Mary Ellen, we have 10 minutes left in our hour. And by the way, I would like to do breakout sessions, uh, revive that little uh, little tradition here if you're willing. So hang around and we'll put you in breakout rooms after the one o'clock hour. Bryce? Well, very briefly, I represented one of those in Clinton, Dem, uh, Scott County, Back, back in the 70s. What has happened is that Iowa has a rust belt. It's on the Mississippi River. Yep. And frankly, uh, Democrats do well in the cities that we're talking about when they run Main Street candidates. Uh, John Forbes is an excellent example, although Urbandale was, was, was changing. The Democrats win when they're off the Main Street instead of uh, being, depending upon a, a decreasing number of of union uh, candidates, they they have to they have to refurbish their message 
And frankly, the Rust Belt has a lot of fear in it. And that's the same kind of fear that is felt in other parts of rural Iowa, which is why they're Republican. And they find that an attractive message, uh, these disaffected uh, independents or Democrats in the Rust Belt area say, I got more comfort over here on the uh, on the right side of the spectrum than on the left side. So, Laura, I absolutely agree with you. They need to retool recruitment. They need to re retool the message. And I think they've got the leadership to do that. Okay, Nancy, you're up next. You are muted, so you'll need to unmute. Same with you, Mary. There we go. Yep, great. Good to see you, Nancy. Hi. Hi, Lori. Um, I just wanted to ask your opinion, I guess. Um, we Republicans seem to have a long, strong history of sticking together on message and just sticking together rather than sticking their necks out um, against Trump or any of his so-called policies, his offenses, whatever. What damage do you think it does for Joe Biden when Democrats, I mean, obviously he's, he's more than likely he's going to be our, he's going to be our uh, candidate, um, continue to talk negatively about Biden and in poll after poll, they say he's too old. And I see that and I just want to say, shut up. You know, we just say anything out there and it hurts us. And in the meantime, you got Republicans sticking together behind their candidate who's got all these felony counts against him. So how harmful do you think that is to Biden for Democrats? Just, I mean, that's not in our constitution to be unified, but uh, how strong how strong a problem do you think that is for Biden? I, I think the media coverage overall is worse than, I mean, an, an assortment of Democrats saying something is not as damaging as the media giving that huge play. And there's a there's a cliche in communication studies that the media don't tell people what to think, but they tell people what to think about. And so if you imagine somebody was writing this over the weekend, if you imagine an alternate universe where the media, there was just endless coverage of how Joe Biden with his 50 years in Washington and ability to navigate Congress, he was able to get in a closely divided Congress, he was able to get some really impactful legislation through and that contributed to the recovery being stronger than the recovery happening in other countries. Like if we had a drumbeat of coverage like that, as opposed to a drumbeat of coverage saying, is Biden too old? A lot of people think Biden's too old. He's pretty old. You know, you see, I mean, like I do understand the concern that people have, but the front runner for the Republican nomination is only three years younger than Biden. So the tenor of the coverage is kind of absurd, in my opinion. But like whether I have a brother who's one of these Democrats who's out there, you know, criticizing and he thinks I should be doing more to criticize and say, Joe Biden shouldn't run for reelection. And it's like, Jim, what do you want me to do? I mean, whatever I say or don't say, <laughs> Joe Biden is running for reelection. So I don't really, you know, I mean, yes, he's old and his his opponent is likely to be only three years younger. So I don't know. But I, I do think that the media coverage is like the coverage of Hillary Clinton's emails. I mean, Colin Powell and lots of other people had private email servers that got no coverage it, with Hillary's campaign that got a huge amount of coverage. And a lot of there was a late shift. Both sides internal polling showed it related to the media coverage the last 11 days of that 2016 campaign. So, I mean, I definitely think that the age issue has the potential to hurt Joe Biden. I'm not as doom and gloom about the polls as many people are, because I think that the a number of issues, including 
abortion, but not only abortion. I think there will be more Democrats will come around to supporting Biden once he's the nominee and it's more of a binary choice. I think right now in polls, a lot of people use polls as a way to express their dissatisfaction with the major party nominees, but that's different from how they will vote when push comes to shove. But I guess we'll find out, right? I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be overconfident going into the election that it couldn't affect people's votes, but we are seeing that generally speaking, voters, swing voters are rejecting the Republican agenda for the country. And that was true in many elections, not just in the most recent school board races, but we saw that in a lot of elections around. Okay, Mary Ellen Miller, you're up next. You need to unmute, please. There you go. Great, thanks. Great conversation. Um, my question, Laura, is my interest is turnout. Okay, so I'm gonna be really interested to see uh, what the turnout is like from this November election. Yes. I've heard that that the 22 election turned out 46,000 more Democrats in Iowa than the 20. And I think the Democrats have a turnout problem. That's just my personal opinion. And I'd really like to look at uh, those districts or those precincts and what those numbers look like over time. The Democratic turnout in 2022 was really terrible. I actually, I regret, I never, I never finished. I, I'm going to go back and finish it maybe if I ever have a slow news week, but they didn't release the statewide statistical report on the 2022 election until after the legislative session had already started this year. So I, I started a post that I never finished in January, but so the Democratic turnout I mean, 2020 was historically high turnout for a lot of reasons, and partly they made it easier to vote by mail, but not just that. So that was a very, very high watermark. But Democratic turnout in 2022 was substantially lower than it was in the 2018 midterm. And that was the difference. That alone was the difference for Tom Miller and Mike Fitzgerald. I mean, that a, a Democratic turnout on the level that we had in 2018 Tom Miller and Mike Fitzgerald would have been reelected, period. So without any more persuasion of swing voters. So the turnout was a real problem. And that was why it's some of the legislative races went the way they did. I don't know what, I mean, I hope, I hope the Democratic Party has a better turnout operation for 2024. The coordinated campaign in 2022 was just not that effective. And yes, it was expected that when you have a Democratic trifecta in Washington, that it's going to be a good year for the out party. But the turnout really was quite poor. And I mean, that's just has to be a high priority. I mean, Cindy Axney also arguably, although and I still think that she would have won if there had been a libertarian candidate on the ballot last year, but arguably Cindy Axney was done in by low democratic turnout in Polk County because she hit the numbers. She basically hit the numbers she needed to hit in the rural county. She wasn't winning the rural counties, but she did at least as well as Biden, if not a little better in the rural counties. And it was Polk County where she fell short. Well, okay. I'm just interested in seeing your report uh, to see if we did any improvement uh, this November. You mean in the school board races? So go to yeah. it. Well, I mean, just I mean, comparatively, I yes. Yeah, the turnout for the school board races, I just don't that I don't have the numbers yet, but I definitely have the impression that the Democratic turnout was higher than it was for the 2021 school board races. I think that, I mean, I'll be surprised if that's not the case. But I also think that there was a persuasion issue that these a lot of people who are swing voters 
And even some people who would normally vote Republican, they just weren't on board with the Republican agenda for schools. And that's why we saw things like the Pella. I mean, you don't win a referendum in Pella on Democratic turnout. I mean, I'm sure they had good Democratic turnout, but you can't win a race in Pella without persuading some Republicans to cross over and vote your way. And on that note, we are going to go into breakout sessions before we do that. And by the way, if you can stick around, do they're really fun. You get a chance to know other people from around the state that you might not have met before. But Laura, what is the URL address for your Substack column and Bleeding Heartland? So I have laurabellin.substack.com, but uh, most of what I publish is at Bleeding Heartland, which is www.bleedingheartland.com. There is also a Bleeding Heartland Facebook page, and I am on many social media platforms with the former Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, and post <laughs> at Laura R. Bellin is my handle on all of those uh, microblogging platforms. But yes, thank you for following. I do have, a, in addition to the Substack newsletter, I have another another email newsletter that has recaps, headlines, and stories recently published at Bleeding Heartland. All right. Thanks, Laura. Well, we, we really want to have you back. Uh, this is a fabulous conversation. Here we go into the breakout thank sessions. You. Thank, thank you for having me and thank you to everyone for